Well, uh, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to worship with you all this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. Like uh, Becky was saying, small groups are a great way to get to know people and to get to be in relationships. And we'd love to invite you to check out one of those. So find one of the small group leaders you saw on the slides or uh, someone else who looks like they know what direction the bathrooms are around here. And we'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community. So excited as well to continue our summer series uh, on the attributes of God. And from the beginning, we've talked about how an attribute, it, it, it's a quality or characteristic that belongs to someone. And what we see in scripture is that God's attributes, they define and describe who he is. In other words, they, they tell us who he is and what he's like. And and it can, I think, be easy to think that studying the attributes of God is kind of some heavy intellectual exercise that's just for pastors or professors or those kinds of things. But uh, a big part of my goal with our series this summer has been to show you how incredibly practical and important to our daily lives understanding the attributes of God really is, be, how they, they have deep practical implications. Because the truth is, is that what you believe, it always determines what you do. You see, our behaviors, they're, they're the tangible expression of our beliefs. They're, it's our faith worked out in our lives. That's, that's what our behaviors are. And so when our actions and attitudes and perspectives are out of line with God and his word, what that reveals ultimately is that on some level we either don't know, we are, we've forgotten, or we simply have chosen to reject something that's true about God. And so the reality is, as we've set forth in our series of summers, that if we want to become the people God's created us, and made us to be, then it has to begin with us beholding and believing who he says that he is. And for the past three weeks, we have been looking specifically at the omni-attributes of God's, God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. We've been seeing that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's ever-present, that his authority has no limits, that his, he is present everywhere at all times and all places, that he knows not just the external visible things, but he sees the internal motives of our hearts. He, he knows everything. And it can be easy, I think, to be overwhelmed by the omni-attributes of God, to feel those things as really weighty things, to feel kind of uh, hemmed in by those things. We saw throughout the Psalms that David even feels that way sometimes. And what I want to show you this morning is that while God is absolutely the omni-God, he is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, he is absolutely all those things and more, what I want to show you this morning is that God also describes himself most, like most centrally, most importantly, God describes himself as deeply compassionate. In fact, when God describes himself, he almost always begins with that part of his character. He almost always begins describing himself by saying that he's compassionate. You see, God's not just some almighty, all-knowing being looking down on us in judgment, pointing a finger at our flaws and our failures. He's a God who sympathizes with our weaknesses and whose compassion drives him to act in mercy towards us repeatedly, relentlessly, even though we give him every reason not to. So I can't wait to show you this morning how beholding and believing in a God who, has, who is as compassionate as he is powerful why that's good news and how it transforms us and empowers us to become the people he's made us to be. 
And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into God's word this morning. God, thanks for our time together in your word and we're grateful to gather for it. And I am so grateful that our time doesn't depend on me. Uh, I just, God, just the last few weeks especially, I've just, I just don't have anything to bring to the table apart from you. God, and I just pray that as we study your word, as we see how you reveal your compassion towards us, that it would be good news to our hearts. God, that in spite of me, your compassion might be beautiful, that it might be compelling to us, that it might be transforming in our lives. And so I'm so grateful, God, that our time together doesn't depend on me, but it depends on you and your spirit. And so, God, I ask, God, for our good and so that you might be worshipped and glorified as the all-powerful and yet all-compassionate God. Might you show yourself to us this morning. And so we need you, God. And we're thankful that you love to meet us in our need for you. So we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, what you see throughout the Bible... Like I said in the beginning, is that God describes himself and is described often as being characterized by compassion. In Exodus chapter 34, it says that when the Lord came down in a cloud, he stood there with Moses, he proclaimed his name. He says that he is the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The psalmist echoes uh, the, that reflection, that revelation, God's self revelation in Psalm 145. The psalmist writes that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, he's slow to anger, rich in love, he is good to all. And he has compassion on all that he's made. In the New Testament, James, he writes in chapter 5 that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And that is so important and good for us to know. But what I want you to see this morning is that God doesn't, that the Bible doesn't just describe God's compassion in vague and general terms. It describes it in specificity. It shows us the depths and the contours of God's compassion. It, it gives us a precise view of it. And I want to begin by showing you that this morning. And we're going to take a look at, at the what, the when, and the who of God's compassion. The what, the when, and the who of God's compassion. So first, the what, right? When you take a look at Scripture, there's, there's three key things that you notice about the what of God's compassion. And the first thing that you see is that God's compassion is an emotion. It's an emotional part of who he is. Some people get uncomfortable when they think of God as being an emotional being because our own emotions are so uh, tipsy-turvy and inconsistent. But God is not moody or dramatic. He's not capricious. He's emotional in the best sense. He, the Bible describes his emotions like that of a, a wise and loving parent. Psalm 103 verse 13 says this way, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, those who reverently worship him. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God compares himself to a mother who is full of compassion for her crying newborn who's nursing an infant. It says, can a mother forget the baby that's at her breast and have no compassion for the child she has born? God says, though, even if she might forget, I will not forget. When you read all the commentaries about those verses, what all the commentators marvel at is the, is the word that, that the Bible uses to describe God's compassion. It is a word that is deeply, intensely emotional. It's a word that describes what's going on in someone's innermost being, their very core. God is saying that he has that kind of compassion for those that fear him, those that love and worship him. 
It's the same in the New Testament. Over uh, a century ago, theologian, famous theologian named B.B. Warfield, he, he wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in it, he looked at every situation throughout the Gospels that described Jesus' emotions. And what he observed was that the most common description of Jesus' emotional life was compassion. The most common word that described Jesus' emotional life was compassion. And when you read through the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, what you keep seeing is Jesus is full of emotion over, full of compassion over and over and over again. And just like the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, the Greek word the New Testament uses to describe compassion, it's this deeply emotional word. It talks about something that rises up from the very core of, of who someone is, so much so for Jesus, we see that on more than one occasion, it's, it's used to describe the, the reasons why Jesus broke down and wept for others. One commentator puts it this way. It says, Jesus was a man of sorrows, not because he was depressed, but because his compassion connected him with us. It was the tears of others that drew out his own tears. Our sadness makes him sad. Our pain brings him pain. And so God's compassion is an emotion, but it's more than just an emotion. God's compassion is characterized by action. You see, it's one thing to be sensitive to the needs of others, to the plight of others. It's another thing to do something about it. Right? And what you see throughout the Bible is that God's compassion, it leads him to action over and over again. Actions characterized by rescue and forgiveness and, and by showing mercy. In Isaiah chapter 63, God says, I will, or the, the, the writer of uh, Isaiah, he says, I'll, I'll tell of the kindness of the Lord, the, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done according to his compassion and his many kindnesses. In Nehemiah chapter 9, the, the, the leaders of the Israelites are recounting their own story of how God's compassion, that it was God's compassion that caused him not to desert them when over and over and over again they rebelled against God and turned away from him. Likewise, we see that Jesus' compassion, it led him to action over and over again. One commentator puts it this way, his compassion comes in waves again and again in Jesus' ministry, driving him to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to teach the crowds, and to wipe away the tears of those who have lost loved ones. And so God's compassion is emotional, it's practical, it's physical, it, 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 it leads itself into action. But thirdly and most importantly, I think, what you have to see is that God's compassion is always a choice. God's compassion is always a choice. In Exodus 33, God says to Moses this way, he's describing his very nature and character, and he says to Moses, he says, I am the God who will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, for many of us, compassion is kind of like this involuntary reaction that we have towards seeing the pain or the plight of those around us. We see the needs of others and our, our heart kind of just goes out to them, or, or we feel bad for people, or sometimes the hurting of other people makes us feel guilty about our own lack of hurting, and, and so we feel obligated to do something about it, whether to actually help people or just to kind of assuage our own guilt about what the things that are our own lack of pain or things in our own lives, but, but God is not like that. You see, God's compassion is completely and totally voluntary. 
God never feels a sense of false guilt when he sees the sin and suffering it causes in our lives and the lives of others. Neither is he obligated to show compassion to anyone. So whenever God shows compassion, it is always a choice. It's his choice to willingly attach himself to us, to allow our pain and our suffering, often self-inflicted, to impact his own heart, to stir up his hands of concern and care for us. See, and that, that leads us to the second thing I want to show you about God's compassion. Not just the what, but I want to show you the when of God's compassion. You see, the Bible tells us that God has compassion for us in probably more places than this, but two ways I want to, two places I want to, two whens I want to show you this morning. The first is, is when we suffer. Isaiah 49, verse 13 and 15 says it this way, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people, and he has compassion on those who are afflicted. Psalm 116, a psalmist writes about how God has rescued him, saying this way, He said, The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and by sorrow. He says, then I called on the name of the Lord, the Lord who is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. He protects the weary, and when I was brought low, he saved me. In Luke chapter 7, we read about Jesus' compassion for this woman who was suffering. She was already a widow and had just lost her only son. Luke says that when the Lord saw her, says his heart went out to her. The word there is that deep emotional word for compassion. Luke says his heart broke for her. He turns to her and he says, don't cry. And he turns to her dead son. He speaks to him. He says, get up. The man arises and he hands him back to her. See, Jesus' compassion, God's compassion, it's not just this vague thing in our lives. God sees the hurting and the pain and the suffering and the difficulties in our lives and our situations, and it moves his compassion within him. You have to see that. You see, sometimes people have this false idea that God only cares about your spiritual reality, that, that he just cares about your soul, but the Bible is clear that like a good and loving parent, God's compassion is stirred up by the suffering and the pain that his, of the people that he loves. When my kids are hurting, my heart goes out to them all the more. I remember when I brought Emma to the hospital with a broken arm just a few weeks ago, I had to apologize to the nurses in the x-ray room because I was like getting in their way trying to comfort her. In the midst of her hurting, I couldn't help but be near to her. See, and so God has compassion for us when we suffer, but that's not the only when of God's compassion. And I need you to see this this morning. What we also see in Scripture is that God's compassion is stirred up for us, not just when we suffer, but his compassion is stirred up for us in the very midst of our sin. 
And I don't know about you, but to me that is the truly remarkable thing. You see, a lot of times we tend to separate our sin and our suffering, right? We kind of see our, our sin as things that we're responsible for and our suffering as things that we don't have a role in. And so we tend not to expect God's compassion towards our sin. And yet the scriptures are abundantly full of the reminder that even in the midst of our sin, God, is, his compassion wells up within him. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8, we read that even though, this is verse 18, Isaiah chapter 30, uh, the first 17 verses were a list of all the ways that God's people had relentlessly failed to obey him and chosen to rebel against him. And it says this in verse 18, in the midst of all of their sin and all of their outright wickedness, God says, yet still the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he'll rise up to show you compassion. Not after repentance, not in the midst of, of sorrow, but in the midst of sin and rebellion, our own God's compassion wells up for us. In Psalm, in Psalm 103, says it this way, For the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. For he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. In the midst of all his sin, with Bathsheba in the midst of his murder of Uriah, David appeals to God's compassion in Psalm 51. He says, God have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Most striking to me this week were God's words to his people in the book of Hosea. Chapter 11 God says it this way. He says, although my people are determined to turn from me. He says, but how can I give you up? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? For my heart is changed within me and all of my compassion is aroused. see, God's compassion is not just in the midst of our suffering. God's compassion for us wells up in the very midst of our sin. One commentator puts it this way, God looks at his people in all of their moral filth. They have proven their waywardness time and again, not occasionally. They are bent on turning away from me, he says. But there's this one thing, they're his. And so what happens inside of God, his heart is inflamed with compassion for his people. He simply cannot give them up. Nothing could cause him to abandon them, for they are his. See, and that brings us to the, to the third thing I want to show you this morning, the who of compassion. Uh, the who of God's compassion. You see, we saw in Hosea 11 how God had compassion for his people, for those who trust and follow him, even though they live in sin and rebel against him. But we see as well in places like the book of Jonah how God has compassion for a people who do not know or follow him, but people who in fact live in direct opposition to him. 
See, the Ninevites, they were, they were an enemy of God who lived with utter contempt for God and for his people. They were wicked and evil in all of the ways you can possibly imagine. And yet, God sends Jonah to them to warn them of his coming judgment and wrath and to call them to repentance. And we read at the end of the book of Jonah how God's actions were driven by his deep compassion for this city full of 120,000 people, he's, God says, who cannot even tell their right hand from their left. See, Jonah is this reminder to us that God looks down on those who oppose him, not with disdain, but with compassion. His response to them is not to see them as idiotic fools. Instead, he's grieved and moved. He says they don't know what they're doing. See, the same was true for Jesus while he was being murdered on the cross, cried out to his father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Are you starting to get a picture of the the scope and the magnitude of God's compassion this morning? Are you starting to see it's emotional, it's physical, it's voluntary, it's when we suffer and when we sin, it's for his people and for the lost, It's, it's deep and it's wide, it is not reluctant, it's eager. And the reality is, church, that when you behold and believe in a God who is characterized by that kind of compassion, what happens is it it changes you in some really profound ways. First and foremost, what it does is it causes us to run to him, not away from him. Causes us to run to him in the midst of both of our sin and our suffering, right? leads us to come to him when we're suffering physically, knowing that while he cares about our spiritual realities first and foremost, he has a deep compassion for us when we're hurting both physically or emotionally. Like a good and loving parent, the the pain and the things that we experience in our life, they stir up his affections and his compassion for us. And your suffering is not too small or not too insignificant that the God of the universe doesn't see and care about it. He is not too busy and he doesn't have too many other bigger problems on his plate to meet you in the midst of it. I was struck this week by one of the stories that's told about Jesus in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew where Jesus himself is grieving the loss of his cousin and friend John the Baptist, his his murder actually. And yet still he overflows with compassion for people who are coming to him. Matthew in chapter 14 writes it this way. He says, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He's trying to get away. Right? When you're grieving, you're trying to get away. And it says, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. They had followed him on foot from the towns. It says, and he had compassion on them. He doesn't look with irritation. He doesn't look with disdain. He's not exasperated that he cannot get a break. He's full of compassion. He sees their need and his heart wells up compassion within him. He wasn't too busy or preoccupied then. And if he wasn't then, he certainly is not now. And so we'd go to God with our suffering But also I think what would happen if we understood the compassion of God, that we would go to him with our sin. That we would be open and honest and vulnerable with him about it because we know that he would respond not with harshness but with gentleness. 
There's a book I've been reading that's been so good for my heart lately. It's a book by a guy named Dane Ortland called uh, Gentle and Lowly. I cannot more highly recommend it to you. It's been so good for my heart. But in it, he writes this. He says, when we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. In fact, your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your heavenly Father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you are even capable of towards yourself. Jesus can no more bring himself to stiff arm you than a loving mother of a crying newborn can bring herself to stiff arm her dear child. For Jesus' heart is drawn out to you. Nothing can chain his affections, for his heart is is swollen with compassion and endearing love. When my kids are hurting, when they are sad, when they are afraid, they come running to me, often with tears jumping into my lap, pouring out their hearts to me and, and their sadness to me, and I am trying to help them to do the same when they sin. I want to create a culture in our home where my kids can not just come to me when they are suffering, but they can come to me in the midst of their sin and rebellion. I want to create a culture in our home where they know that they can be honest with me about their sin and know that I will deal gently with them. You see, part of that creating that culture is required that I go back to them and apologize when I have responded to their sin with, uh, with, with anger with a harshness instead of an appropriate compassion. And it's caused me to come back to them often to remind them of God's gentle compassion towards them. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, God comes to us gently. And his gentleness, it leads us towards a vulnerability with him. And it leads us towards an openness with him. See, the reason you can be sure that God responds with gentleness when we come humbly bringing our sin to him is because of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, we see that the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest, we do not have an intermediary with God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as you are, yet one who didn't sin. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus gets it. He understands how hard it is to follow God. He understands the, the, the lure of temptation and he understands the, 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 the desire towards sin. He gets it and so he knows how to deal gently with us when we sin. And that reality, it empowers us. Dane Ortland again in Gentle and Lowly, he writes this, he says, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, to be made too much of, or to be exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed, but it can easily be neglected and forgotten. And we draw far too little strength from it. See, some of you are here this morning and the idea of coming to God in the midst of your sin before you've cleaned yourself up seems insane to you. You feel this desperate need that in the midst of your sin, before you can even come to him, you've got to get your crap together. That you've got to wash off the outside. You've got to have a little bit of distance from it. And yet the reminder of God's word for you this morning is that even in the midst of your sin, God's affectionate compassion wells up for you. 
And while you cannot clean up yourself, he longs that you might come to him so he can clean you, so he can restore you. You see, and if we might understand the compassion of God, we would run to him quickly in our sin. You see, and so beholding and believing the compassion of God, it transforms our relationship with him. But we also see throughout scripture that if we would believe that that is true about God, then it actually changes our relationship with others as well. It transforms our lives with others. We'd be characterized by compassion ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this way. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. He says, So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we have ourselves received from God. Romans chapter 12, Paul again urges believers. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. He says, show compassion. 1 Peter chapter 3, at the end, he writes this, Finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 6 says to us this, Be merciful, compassionate, just as your Father is merciful and compassionate. You see, if we would believe, behold and believe in the compassionate reality of the God we worship, then we would look at the suffering and the pain of others and our hearts would be moved, not with a sense of duty and obligation or false guilt, but with one full of compassion. The problem is, is that all too often, instead of responding with compassion like Jesus does towards the blind men crying out to him for their sight, we're like the crowds who rebuke them for bothering the master in the first place. I know that this can be true of me. I can't remember where I read this this week, but one of the commentators or authors, he said something along the lines of, he said, in our fallen nature, we're often prone to react too strongly. But also, he says, in our fallen nature, we're prone to react insufficiently as well. It can be easy for us to be hard-hearted, not just towards God, but towards people. And for us to be a people who loves the Lord, it looks like us responding to his own compassion towards others that way. See, and that leads us to the next thing I want to, that would change about us if we really believe that God was compassionate, is that we would be eager to show forgiveness and mercy to others. We'd be eager to show forgiveness and mercy to others. Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way, verse 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, for just as in Christ God forgave you. See, the reality is that for an awful lot of us, it, it takes like a crowbar for us to give up our grudges that we hold against others and to forgive those who have hurt us. We'll, we'll forgive people only if they come groveling to us, owning every part of whatever the problem might have been. But that's not the kind of compassion and forgiveness that God has shown to you. We saw in Isaiah chapter 30 that God longs to show mercy, that he rises up to show compassion, not after his people have repented, but he longs to show them grace in the midst of their rebellion. He's eager to show compassion. He's eager to forgive. He is eager to show mercy. And the reality is, is that if we have the audacity to refuse forgiveness, what it shows is that we have no idea about the forgiveness we've received from God himself. 
if we refuse to show compassion to those who have hurt us, it reveals that we have no idea the compassion that God has shown to us. You see, just like beholding and believing in God's compassion changes us in positive ways, forgetting it, ignoring it, rejecting it, changes us in negative ways. First, like we've seen, it it prohibits us from showing true compassion. We'll either lack compassion altogether, we'll be critical of others instead of compassion, or we'll just try to be compassionate from a distance, having feelings of sympathy but no actions to go along with it. Or our compassion will just end up condoning the sin and folly that led people into pain in the first place, none of which reflects the compassion of God. Tim Keller, I think, so helpfully sums it up this way. He says, when we look at people who have brought trouble in to their lives by their own foolishness. We say things like, it serves them right, or we mock them on social media saying, what kind of imbecile says something like this? When we see people on the other side of the political party defeated, we gloat. We, this is all a way of detaching ourselves from them. He says we distance ourselves from them partly out of pride and partly because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours, but God doesn't do that. His compassion, real compassion, is the voluntary attachment of our hearts to others. It means their sadness and condition grieves our hearts. It affects us. It is deeply uncomfortable and yet is the reality of the character of God's compassion. See, when we fail to behold and believe in God's compassion, it leads us towards that kind of a false compassion towards others a lack of it. But not only will we fail to reflect God's true compassion, we'll fail to surrender to his compassionate love in the first place. See, some of you are here this morning and you've been investigating Jesus for a while. Maybe you've been in small group or maybe you've been exploring faith and and maybe you've been rethinking the faith of your childhood and and, and the thing as you keep wrestling with it is that, is that you're here this morning, you've been investing in him, but for, for him, the thing that's been holding you back from saying yes to him, from surrendering your heart and your life to him, is this reality for you that you do not yet know his tenderness and compassion. Here's the truth. If you might see him for who he really is, then there would be no fear left in you. You see, the God that calls us to submit our entire lives to him is also the God who is deeply compassionate. He's not a narcissistic tyrant trying to merely use you for his own selfish purposes. He is a good and loving father who longs for your good and invites you into his redeeming eternal purposes. There is a life there. And for some of you, you need to be reminded, you need to see the compassion of God. It's safe to surrender to him. He calls us to give every part of our hearts to him. And what you need to see is that that's only good news if he's not just the all-powerful God, but he's the God characterized by deep compassion. And so the question is, as we have talked about every week, how do, you, how do you move from unbelief to belief? How do we become characterized by a belief in the truth about God that leads us to reflect and worship Him rightly? How do we become characterized by reflecting the compassion we see Him about God Himself? And if you've been around River City for any length of time, you know that this is the point where we get to Jesus. 
You see, because nowhere is the compassion of God more pronounced, nowhere is it more vivid, no more is it, nowhere is it more beautiful than on the cross itself. You see, it's there that the compassionate God sees and meets our greatest need. See, compassion at his heart is about seeing the needs of others and being moved to meet those needs. You see, and for us, what we see on the cross is that God not only sees our greatest need, he comes to meet it. We were the wicked Ninevites, rebellious and evil to the core, and yet God did not send a reluctant missionary to warn us of his judgment. He came himself in the person of Jesus. And unlike Jonah, who wept outside the city over his own loss of comfort, Jesus weeps outside the city for those who have not known him. But he didn't just weep, he bled and died. His compassion led him to action to give his own life for ours so that we might know his compassion fully. We might know it completely. That's a big part of what we're remembering and celebrating each week as we take communion. We're reminding ourselves that our sin was so serious that it required the death of God himself to pay its price and its penalty. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember to stir up our hearts and our affections for the Lord, who has himself shown us an unending, unfathomable amount of compassion. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've seen him not only as the all-powerful king to surrender to, but the compassionate God who is worthy of your love, then I want to encourage you, go back during our time of worship and take communion. Do it as a chance to celebrate and to remember his abundant compassion made known to you on the cross. Or for those of you who are here today, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who he is and what it means to follow him, then I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. God's not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that rests in him completely. And so if you're here today and you have done that, or if you do it for the first time, then go back and take communion. But wherever you're at, as we sing and worship God and remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and the idea of a God who's, whose compassion wells up for you, not just in the midst of your suffering, but in the midst of your sin and rebellion, that's not something you've ever heard. And the good news of his compassion for you needs to sink into your heart for the first time. For others of you, you need to be reminded of his relentless compassion anew. And you need to let it fuel your, the, the way that you run to him in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your suffering, knowing that he is with you, that he longs to rise up and show compassion to you. For others of us, for all of us, we need the good news of God's compassionate, tender heart for us. We need that to shape the way we relate to others. See, the only way that you are full of the kind of compassion God has for you, for others, is when you see it, when it's good news to you. The only way you are full of compassion for people, not after they repent, but in the midst of their sin, is when you see that that's God's compassion for you is that way. The only way your affections and your concern is stirred up for others 
in a way that is appropriate, in a way that brings life, in a way that seeks to bring healing but not stand at a distance is when you see God's compassion for you. And so communion is a chance for us to remember. And I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, ask God to remind you of his, the truth about his compassion. Let it fuel your love for him. Let it fuel your longing to run to him. And let it fuel your passion to show compassion to others. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the reminder, God, that you long to show us compassion. That you are not begrudging it. That you don't just have to, but you choose to. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to behold and believe in that part of your attributes, that the attribute, your attribute of compassion for us, not just to know it, but to internalize it, God. And we ask that, you'd, that you would help us to re- remind us of that reality. So not just in our suffering we turn to you, but in the midst of our sin. And we pray that you would enable us to come running to you for the forgiveness and the mercy that we need, and, and so that we might be empowered to respond rightly to you, God, but also so that we might be empowered to reflect your compassion towards others thank you jesus that you don't just suffer for us but you suffer with us and that you invite us as your people to suffer with others as we reflect you we love you god thanks that you loved us first and have shown us compassion amen